0: Amen. Well, God bless you. Brother Allen, come right ahead. You'll need your Bible. That's one thing I like about those who come to preach at our church. Bring your Bible because you're going to eventually be turning to it. So uh, glad you could be here tonight, brother. And I didn't touch that water, so feel free. Yes, sir. Matthew chapter 5, if you will. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, I'm glad to be here. You know, when when you're not pastoring... Because I've pastored for about twenty, a little over twenty years, and when you're not pastoring, it throws you off a little bit when you preach. And last time I preached here, um, I finished the message. It was a Wednesday night, like it is now, and I finished the message, and I, I started going into invitation, which you do on Sunday, which you don't. I don't know if a church out there that does it on Wednesday. And I, I started going into invitation mode, and I saw, I saw piano players going in panic. I saw music directors going in panic. I saw, what is this guy doing? So, so I'm going to try not to do that this evening. But, um, but I, have, I have started. And it's, the other thing that's weird about not pastoring is when you start a series, that series could go on for months because you, you add to it the next time you get to preach. Now, I've been fortunate enough that Pastor Rumsey has allowed me to preach several times. Um, but I've been working on a, a series, little by little as it comes along, on the Beatitudes. And so we're looking at that this this evening. Um, is Daniel in here? Oh, yeah, that's right. That, that's where he would be, wouldn't it? Um, so I, I was talking to Daniel, and I'm excited about Daniel, what God's doing in his life. And and I was talking to him this, this evening about how I think he's going to do a great job as a pastor. I think that God has prepared him. God's given him a good church to train in and to learn from, and, and how God's just going to use him in a great and mighty way. And then he t- started talking about snow. And he said, we have snow coming. And I said, yeah, but we're going to be on the road before the snow comes. And he said, no, no, it's coming. It's going to be coming Thursday night, and you'll be here. And I said, really? And, uh, and he said, um, he said, yeah, it's going to be here Thursday night. And uh, then he looked on his phone, and he said, oh, no, 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 I messed up, it's Friday. And I looked at Daniel, and I said, Daniel, you're going to make a terrible pastor. And, I'm going to, and I walked away, so I, I need to apologize to him now for saying that. Um, I feel bad, I feel really bad about having that in my heart when I preach, but, um, but uh, he should be honest. So anyway, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, the Bible says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and, uh, and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we're going to stop there. I'm going to focus on the meek this evening, and we're going to pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this opportunity we have to look into your word. I pray that you would lead and guide in everything that I say, Father, that you would use this this message to strengthen us and help us, Father, and that your spirit would do the work that he desires to do this evening. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we start off this, and I'm going to look at blessed are the meek, but I'm I'm looking at verse number one, uh, and seeing the the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and 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 the way that kind of happens is something like this, where. Where Jesus, you always, whenever there's a crowd, he's going to the crowd, he's ministering to them, he's healing them, he's teaching them. Uh, he's always going to the, the multitudes, and they're always coming to him, uh, and that's a great relationship. But in this situation, something very, very different happens. The multitude starts coming to Jesus, and instead of Jesus going to them, Jesus looks over to them and does one of these numbers. I got to get away from these guys and i don't know very many places where he does that but they're coming to him and the bible clearly says he's heading to the mountains he's he's heading away from them and i don't know all that's to that i don't know the reason why but i kind of imagine here he is about to give the greatest greatest sermon ever been preached i think most people would agree the sermon on the mount was the greatest sermon ever preached and he's about to preach that. The multitude's coming to him. Everybody has needs. And he says, I know you have needs, but I need to meet, meet with my Father. I need to meet with my Heavenly Father. And he goes up into the mountain and he goes there. Uh, and the Bible says, And when he was set, now I don't know exactly what that means, but he did not meet with them until he was ready. When he was set, when he was ready, he met with them on his time. And so when I see that, what comes to my mind is Jesus, who is everything to everybody. I think we would all agree with that, wouldn't we? As God, he's everything to everybody. But as man, which he was 100% man, He's set an example that it's not our job to be everything for everybody. It's not our job to be everything for everybody. And he walks away and he realizes that his time is very precious. There's a clear lesson that we need to guard our time. You know that everybody wants a piece of your time. Everybody would take a piece of your time if you let them. And it's interesting, Jesus is everything to everyone, but as man, he set an example. He refused to be everything to everyone. He leaves a crowd that felt that they needed him, he goes into the mountain to be alone with his heavenly father. Now, if Jesus refused to be everything to everyone, why do you feel like you have to be? And I know that's a strange challenge, but why do, you, why, why do so many people feel like they have to be everything to everybody? Did you know that that's actually a form of idolatry? When you get people to depend on you for everything, Who are they not depending on? You've become God to them. And let me say that we've done this even to pastors and thinking that a pastor is supposed to be everything to everybody. And the Bible never says he's supposed to be that. And what you've done is you've made your pastor a God. And I I was thinking about this. Um, If you know your history, how many know what, what circuit riding preachers were? Okay, Uh, early pioneer days, they they had these preachers that would go out and they would find scattered communities and they'd form these communities and form little churches and then they would kind of pastor this church and then they'd they'd go and they'd help another community form a church and then they'd go around and they'd kind of go from, from community to community and sometimes a church that was kind of established, maybe some leaders set, sometimes that preacher would not come around to them for months. You know what that means? That means for months, they had to sneeze, and there wasn't a pastor there to hand them a, 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 a tissue paper. So that, you know, that's what pastor is supposed to be, right? I mean, they got cuts, and there was a pastor that wasn't there to put the Band-Aid on. God forbid they went to hospitals, or they went, you know, they had diseases. And for months, there wasn't a pastor that would, that would visit them. And you know what? They still managed to be a church. And he didn't have to be everything to them. And I would say they were living in harder times than we are. Dr. Tom Malone Sr. And this has, by the way, this has nothing to do with our sermon, but, but I, just a little rabbit trail for a second. Dr. Malone, he, he used to, at the beginning of his ministry, he'd give the testimony that, that he, he really felt like he had to be everything to everybody. And people would come up to him and say, "Say, Dr. Malone, would you visit this person? My loved one, they're, they're in the hospital. Would you visit this person? They need salvation. Would you visit this person? And people would come up to him and say, "Would you?" and he would just get piles of people he needed to visit. The congregation would come to him. And there's a, a wise preacher that preached for him one day, and he, and he saw this happening. And he came to Dr. Malone, and he said, he said, he said Pastor Malone, you're hurting your people. He said, you're training them that you're going to do what they're responsible to do. And you are hurting them. And Dr. Malone took that to heart and, and, and started, doing, he started doing this. People would come to him. To him they'd have a little, like a little card. They'd write out somebody's name and address. And they'd say, here, Dr. Malone, would, pr- would you visit this person? Uh, they need to be saved or they're in the hospital or whatever may happen. And he'd say, I sure would. And he'd take that and put it in a pocket. Then he'd reach into the other pocket and put out another card and say, would you visit this person? Somebody else would come and he'd, they'd say, Would you visit this person? He'd say, Sure. And would you visit this person? One day a, a preacher came up to him and said, He said, What does your church feel about playing cards? You know, and they meant like gambling with cards. They said, What do you think about playing cards? And Dr. Malone says, That's all our church does is play cards. That's all we do. And the ideal is Jesus, who is everything to everybody, the multitude's coming to him, and he says, You know what? I'm going to guard my time. I'm going to spend time with my Heavenly Father. I'm going to prepare myself. And when I'm set, I'm going to come out and talk to you. I think there's a good example there. As you grow in the Christian life, it seems obvious that the life God blesses is a far cry from this world's definition of success. Our world worships power, notoriety. Uh, financial influence. Bookstores are filled with quick guides to be successful, a- and our society tends to reject any evidence of weakness, from a losing sports team to an elderly person in poor health. However, God blesses meekness in the lives of people. You know, society has taken this philosophy to to uh, despising the weak to, to a whole new level. I mean, I mean, if if you're a certain age. I think our country is leaning towards euthanasia more and more. If, if you're a baby and you have a defect, well, we should just abort you. And the ideal is if there's any sign of weakness in your life, then we should just get rid of you. And that's where our society is leaning. Uh, we will not tolerate le- weakness. In fact, uh, we live in a day and age where society even views Christians as being weak. We, uh, they, they view us as God being our crutch. Let me say, God, God is much more than my crutch. I like what uh, brother, what, what pastor said a moment ago uh, when he when he was praying. He talked about uh, I think it was John fifteen four and five that he quoted, where he said, um, "I am the vine, you are the branches." Um, without me we can do nothing is how that ends and honestly we can do nothing God's more than that Adrian Rogers said this way he said if you think meekness is weakness try spending a week being meek and uh you know it's difficult it's easy to be a hothead that's easy it's easy to be out of control it's easy to be power driven it's hard to be meek now according to our text God blesses meekness now, meekness is not weakness. Uh, what meekness is, and I've heard this defined this way by many people, uh, weakness is power under control. Now, there's a place for anger if it's under control. But when it loses control, then it becomes a huge problem. Uh, Now, Jesus is the example of what meekness is. Uh, The Bible says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, uh, and, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's meekness. He's equal with God, but he allows man to crucify him. That's power, but the choice to not use that power. And that, that's what meekness is. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus is defining his innermost being. He said, this is, this is the best definition I can give you of who I am. I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest into your souls. So we know Jesus. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy those that were placing him on that cross. But he had power under control. The Greek word for meekness was often used to describe a farmer breaking in a colt. Now the horse was strong. The horse had a lot of power. It had the ability to do much more than a man could possibly do. uh, But that power was not under control. That, that, That power was wild and reckless. And when they would tame that horse, they would say, we are meeking that horse. We have meeked that horse. And that's power under control. You know, Moses wasn't weak. He was the greatest general in history. But Numbers 12, 3, the Bible says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. You know who wrote that, by the way? Who wrote that down? Moses did. That'd be like me writing down, and Alan Waddell was the most humble man who ever lived, you know? The only thing that saves Moses on this is, is it was really the Holy Spirit, not Moses. Uh, and I could even imagine Moses in my mind saying, God, I can't write that down. Can we just, Lord, can we skip over that? I don't want to write that down. And the Holy Spirit says, no, you're going to write that down. But he wasn't a weak man. I want to give you some examples this evening of, of what meekness looks like. Uh, I want to start off with a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham. Genesis 13, if you look there, verses 7 through 9. Genesis 13, 7 through 9. I hear one or two pages going. All right. Um, the rest of you guys are, are finding out on your phone. Genesis 13, 7 through 9. There was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the, there in the land. Uh, and Abram said unto you, Lot... Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. If thou depart to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. He says, Lot, you have the pick of the land. Lot, you go ahead, and whatever land looks best to you, I'll take whatever's left over. And we will separate now, this is a mark of a mature Christian. Abraham had all the power. Really, Abraham, if you, if you know this story, you know that Abraham really had the power to take all the land if he wanted to. He didn't have to offer Lot anything. He could have made Lot a servant if he wanted to. But yet, he surrenders his power. He prefers Lot above himself. And when we're surrendered to God, we're not afraid to surrender to another person in meekness. That's what God will do. In Romans 12, 10, the Bible says, Be kindly affection one to another, with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. Abraham preferred Lot over himself. I think of Joseph. You're not going to look that up because it's really Genesis 38 and 39, two whole chapters. We're not going to do that this evening. But we know the story, don't we? We know it very well. Joseph just wanted to be a good son to his dad. All he wanted to do in his life was honor his father and mother. As a result, he's sold into slavery. He's lied about by his brothers to his father. Then he's lied about to, uh, his master, from his master's wife. And, 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 and we see him spiraling downward into slavery and into prison. And spends years upon years of his life, which seems to be just wasted years. He did not start a, a letter writing campaign. He did not start a fight back organization. No, Joseph, as far as we can tell, he just accepts the situation. He just trusts that God knows what he's doing. He, he, he just understood what Romans 8.28 meant, even though Romans 8.28 had not been penned yet. He understands everything is working for his good, for God's glory. God has a plan for this, and I'm going to trust God. And he accepts the situation, and he does the best he can to be the best servant he can be no matter where he's at. And one day he's placed in authority, and his brothers come for help. And he has the power in his hands to bring revenge upon his brothers. Now, he does toy with them a little bit. I'll be honest with you, I kind of like that part. But he has power to destroy them. But he chooses rather to forgive them. Meekness reveals itself when we are right, and we have the power to hurt someone who is wrong, and we don't. That's meekness. How about Jesus? How many would agree that's probably a pretty good example? John thirteen again. We won't go through the passage, uh, but uh, Jesus has this opportunity to point out Judas, and Jesus restrains. First off, he restrained, he, he restrained his advantage of what he knew. Uh, he restrained his advantage of what he knew. Uh, Jesus knows everything. How many would agree that Jesus was God? There's nothing you could hide from Jesus. Uh, again, he was God, had all the power of God. It's not that he was limited. It's that he chose not to use it. That's why he's the example of meekness. So in the matter of Judas, Jesus knows exactly what Judas is going to do, and yet he does nothing to stop him. Um, and we're probably going to look at a couple verses uh, in, in John chapter uh, 13. So why don't we just head there for a moment. John chapter 13. And we see here... Really, a great example of power under control. So he knows Jesus knew exactly what Peter what Jesus, Judas would do. He knows exactly that Judas is going to betray him. He knows when he's going to betray him. He even says a person who dips with me is going to betray me. He knows everything about this, but having that knowledge, Jesus had done so well in protecting the reputation of Judas. That when he said, someone's going to betray me, nobody, nobody believed it was Judas. That wasn't because Judas was such a great man of character. It's because Jesus did a great job of of protecting his reputation. No one would suspect it's Judas. Jesus did that well in covering the sin of Judas. I wonder how often we want to be the first to, to, to reveal the fault of somebody else. Or the offense that they've committed towards us instead of following the, 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 the example of restraint that's perfectly displayed by our Savior. Meekness protects the testimony of even our vilest offenders. I like that, so I can't think of which hymn says it, but the vilest offender who truly believes that moment with Jesus a pardon receives. He pardons the vilest offenders. 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things, have fervent charity among you, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. So Jesus restrained his knowledge. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he restrained acting upon that in, in a vengeful way. Then he restrains acting upon his advantage. How many would agree in a fight between Jesus and Judas, Jesus is going to win? Every time. John 13, if you're there, the the Bible says in verses 2 and 3, and supper being ended, the devil now having power, I'm sorry, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Listen to this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What does that mean? That means Jesus knew the power he had. He knew the authority he had. And that he was come from God and went to God. In other words, he was not born on this earth. He knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was God. He knew this. So he was given all power from the Father to stop this. He knew he was come from God. Uh, He went to God. He was, in fact, God. Judas did not have a chance. Yeah, what do you do about it? Nothing. You know, if you love me the way God loves me, you're not giving me what I want, you're giving me what I deserve. I'm sorry, let me say that wrong. I said that wrong. You won't give me what I want, nor will you give me what I deserve, but you'll give me what I need. I'm glad I corrected that, because that was terrible the first time I said it. But you're not going to give me what I want. It's not just a matter of pleasing people. You're not going to give me what I deserve. It's not a matter of getting revenge or, or justice. But you're giving me what I need. You're giving me what I need. And that's exactly what Jesus did here. Christ's love is restraining love, it's a meek love. Meekness contains the very essence of forgiveness. You know, forgiveness is a choice to limit your remembrance of an offense. Let me explain that for a moment. Did you know this? Did you know that forgiveness is actually a covenant vow? It's actually a contract that you make with somebody, it's a covenant. Let me give you an example. When God chose to forgive man, he called it the New Testament or the New Covenant. God's forgiveness to you and I is a covenant vow from God. It's a covenant. And then God says this to us. In fact, let's do this. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, if you will. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. God makes his covenant vow to us. The Bible says in verse 10, for this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. And that, he saith, a new covenant. He hath made uh, the first ode. Uh, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. What is God saying? When he says, I will remember their sins no more, I will remember their iniquities no more, he says, That is my covenant with them. That's a covenant vow. And and, and I've studied this because there's something about that that bothers me. God says, I'll remember their sins no more. That means that God would actually have to limit his physical attributes. That God doesn't do that. So I thought this, this seems very contradictory because in one sense, God says, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to remember your sins anymore. I'm going to erase them from my memory. In another sense, that's, that's limiting God's memory, his physical attribute. Uh, so how can God do that? And it seemed to contradict itself. But I've read a couple commentaries that I think I agree with, one of them being J. Adams. J. Adams said this. He said, That it's not that God doesn't remember anymore. He said if you study out that Greek word, there's not an English word that's really comparable, but it means I'll not remember it against them anymore. I will not bring it to my memory in a way that is against them. I will not do that. And and, and that makes perfect sense. I'll not bring it to my memory in a way uh, that that, that, it's not that God has amnesia. It's that I'll no longer remember their sin against them. Uh, I I will not uh, not let it come to my mind in a negative way towards them. And this is a covenant vow. And if you get nothing else out of this, this is so important. Ephesians 4.32, the Bible says, And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as, this is the hard part, God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So what's it say? It's saying forgive one another the same way God has forgiven you. What does that mean? That means when you forgive somebody, you are making a covenant vow to them. That I will not bring this to my remembrance against you anymore. Because that's the way God forgave us. That's going into contract. That's saying, I will, uh, yes, it's going to come to my memory. Yes, we're we're made of flesh. Yes, sometimes uh, things come to our mind that we have to cast out. But I will not use my remembrance of this against you. I will not bring it up. I will not make you have to pay for it again. I will not in any way. I, I, I will not do that. That's what forgiveness is. And if you say, I've forgiven you, and you bring it up, You've broken a covenant. You've broken a contract because you said I forgive you. And and that's very important. You say, well, then I'll just not forgive them. Well, now you've broken a command because God tells you to forgive one another as as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Forgiveness is meekness. Forgiveness is I have power, but I'm going to control that power. I can bring it up, but I'm not going to. I have something against you, but I'm not going to use it. It's meekness. And Jesus, who came to this earth with all the power of God, did not lose that power when he became man. He simply chose not to use it. And this is why when he had the opportunity to define his innermost being, he said, this is the best definition I can come with of who I am i am meek and lowly of heart how about david david in 1 samuel 24 exemplifies it so well he had knowledge of saul's intention to kill him and so like jesus he knew what was happening he had the knowledge advantage he also had the knowledge of the fact that he himself was king in god's eyes god had given him that knowledge God had, had shared his foreknowledge with David. David, you're going to be king. So David knows that Saul intends to kill him. David knows that he's already the king in God's eyes. Saul was already rejected past tense. It's not that Saul was going to be rejected. God had already rejected Saul. David knew this. On top of all that, he also had the point of advantage as, Paul, as Saul was taking a little potty break in a cave Talk about your vulnerable position. Saul was in it. And he did not even know that David was in the very same cave. And knowing that he had the advantage of knowledge and the advantage of power, David refused to use it. And he acted very much like our Savior when he did that. He acted very much like our Savior. So we see some examples. I want to notice an examination. We're going to take a test today. For that test, go to Psalm chapter 37, if you will. We, we're going to take a little exam. We'll see if you pass. Psalm 37. And what's interesting about Psalm 37 is Psalm 37 is where Matthew 5 gets the phrase, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The Bible says, "Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut, cut down like the grass, and wither as a, as a green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, and very thou shalt be fed." Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as a light, and thy judgment as a noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, uh, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Uh, for yet a little while, and the wicked shall, be, shall not be. Uh, yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall be, not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth. That's Matthew 5. And shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So we have a free examination this evening. Here are some questions you can ask yourself to find out, am I meek? Do I pass a test? Number one, do I become angry or fretful easily? Do I become angry or fretful easily? Look at verse number three. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and very thou shalt be fed. Trust in the Lord. When you trust in God, your response is not anger or or evil intent, but it's to do good. When you trust God. Verse number 8. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Don't don't be angry. Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Uh, So uh, we are not to fret ourselves. And then verse number 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. You know, something about that phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, has to do with peace, has to do with you inheriting peace in your heart. That's part of your inheritance there. The first response of the meek person will not be a fight back response. Meek people are not reactionary people. The The meek person is content with letting God settle the score. Let me give you some homework. If you can buy the book, Reactivity by Paul David Tripp, I would encourage you to do so. And read it. It's a great help to me. But the meek man focuses his attention on Christ. He doesn't feel that he has to do anything to make his desired outcome happen. He's just in the sovereign God. He knows no matter what the outcome is, God has a plan. Trust the process. Do as Joseph did and just keep serving God. So do I become angry or fretful easily? I wonder if we pass that question. How about the second question? Do I accept God's word with, with delight? Do I get excited when I hear the word of God preached? You don't have to shout amen. You don't have to jump up and down. You don't have to do any of that. But does the word of God, does that do something in my heart? In James 1.21, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive, look at the next two words, with meekness, the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. You receive with meekness the engrafted word. God says here that meek, a meek person is going to receive the word of God readily. Some people will not come to church unless their church is entertaining. There are churches everywhere like that. Many churches are catering to this crowd, making entertainment their highest priority because that brings the money in. Many are creating man-made experiences through technology and they're calling them God-made experiences when God has nothing to do with them. God's not interested in doing something that man can create on technology. God's interested in doing things man cannot do. The word receive in James 1.21, it means welcome. Let me ask you, do you welcome the word of God? Have, Have you sat down to study the word of God absolutely prepared to do whatever it says. Have you done that? Adrian Rogers said this. He said, not just parading the word of God, pass a judgment bar of your mind to make up your mind whether or not uh, you think this is right or you think that it's wrong or whether you think it's interesting or it's not interesting. Parading the word of God, pass a judgment bar of your mind. You know, the Bible is not primarily meant to be interesting. In fact, I don't know if you've discovered this, but oftentimes the Bible is disturbing. Oftentimes, when I read the word of God, the Bible disturbs my heart. And I need to get things right. And that word welcoming, it means that I welcome whatever, whatever God desires to tell me today. It may be a word of encouragement or it may be a word of correction. Either way, I welcome it the same way. The reason many people do not get much from their Bible studies is because they're filled their head with so many things. Uh, and now they're a know-it-all. I'm not against knowledge. The Bible actually lifts up the idea throughout the book of Proverbs of gaining knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing, but, but knowledge can be a bad thing. The Bible says there's times that knowledge can puff up, that we can become a know-it-all. And they think that they're smart enough to pull truth from God's word without needing God's spirit. And That's dangerous. And they can't come with meekness because knowledge puffeth up, and the Bible has to be has to submit to their superior intellect. I am so smart, and if the Bible doesn't agree with me, then I've got to find a way to make the Bible agree with me. Because how could God not agree with me? I mean, I am great. That's the mentality. And this is when it comes full circle back to the very first beatitude given that that, that we are to be poor in spirit. You know what poor in spirit means? It means that you, in your spirit, you see yourself as blind and as naked and as poor and as having nothing. The opposite of the Laodicean church, who saw themselves as rich and increased in much goods and in need of nothing. That's the opposite of poor in spirit. And when you realize that you are intellectually bankrupt, then God says, I can use that. And oh, the things I can show you when you come to that point. There's, there's, there's a, a sequence here. So, so the second question is, how do I receive the word of God? Do I accept God's word of delight? So number one, do I become angry or fretful easily? Number two, do I accept God's word of delight? Number three, what's my attitude towards a sinning brother? Do I receive the news gleefully? Is it something you rejoice in because you can't wait to tell somebody? Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of what? Meekness. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. How do I feel about a sinning brother? If we were excited about giving the gospel out as we are about telling people about someone's sin, the whole world would have been one to Christ by now. We love telling the good old news of this person fell and this person messed up. Restore, it means to set a broken bone. It means that you set things back in order. Do you have a restoring attitude? The opposite of meekness is when we delight in someone's sin. Within these beatitudes is the attitude of mourning. There's poor in spirit, then it's blessed are they that mourn, right? And you should be broken hearted. Not proud, not gleeful, but brokenhearted. And these Beatitudes are in in sequential order. I think there's a a reason for the order. Uh, You know, you're never going to mourn until you see yourself as poor in spirit. When you see yourself as bankrupt, that's when you're going to be able to mourn over somebody and their condition. And you'll never be meek until you see yourself as poor in spirit and you begin to mourn. You're never going to be meek until you do those things. It's sequential. And a meek person is not going to gloat over someone's sin because they see themselves as spiritually poor and they see their response to sin should always be to mourn, not gloat. So what's my attitude towards a sinning brother? And then do I seek unity with my brother? Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That all goes back to lowliness and meekness, which are the ways that Jesus defines himself. These are those who are meek with power under control and those who are rebellious with power out of control. And when the rebellion is in the household, there's disunity in the household. And when there's meekness, there's unity in the household. And a meek person has the ability to restore relationships that have been broken in their lives to mend wounds. I like what Jay Vernon McGee said. He said, you can't believe half of what you hear, but you sure can repeat it. And unfortunately, that's what we do. There are Christians like that who, who, who don't know if, if what they hear is true, but, man, they can't wait to, wait to repair, repeat it. And even if it is true, let me ask you this. Why is it everybody's business? And the, next, the last question I have is how is my attitude towards someone who disagrees with me? 2 Timothy 2 24-25, and the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God for adventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, I think most of us like it when people agree with us. Don't you like that? The test of our meekness is not when someone agrees with us, it's when How do we respond when someone disagrees with us? It never ceases to amaze me how bold we become on Facebook. I've seen people that would say things to other people on Facebook, they would never say to their face, which makes it ironic that it's Facebook. I know people who their entire ministry is to find fault in, in other people and debate them on social media, and they think they're doing God a service. Can I say I have never met a person who has made a radical change in their life because of an argument on Facebook? Not found one yet. I'm not saying they're not out there, but I've just never heard of one. 1st Peter 3:15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, how do we cultivate that? And I'm not sure if I really have time for this, but I'm going to go ahead and just try the next couple minutes finishes finish this off. A few things. Galatians 5, through 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. What's the next one? Meekness, right? Meekness. Temperance against such there is no law. It's, it's, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And we have to understand the fruit is cultivated. It's not manufactured. My favorite fruits are strawberries, peaches, and mangoes. When I was a teenager, my first job was at Blazos Pie Shop in Westland, Michigan. And you would get these pies that the strawberries were mounded up. And and there's a glaze over it. And it was just strawberries and glaze. Put some whipped cream on it if you want. And it was a mountain. And I loved it. I loved it. You know, fruit needs pruning, it needs cultivating, it needs watering. Most of us are still ripe strawberries. Most of us still need a lot of cultivating. So fruit is cultivated. And then meekness is cultivated through difficult experiences. I hate to tell you that. Difficulties in life will either cultivate meekness or rebel in one or the other. Colossians 3.12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowers of mercies, kindness, hum- humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering. There's a principle in the Bible. It's a principle of put off and put on. You see those words often in the Bible together. It would say put off something bad, but then it would say put on something good, and I call that the principle of replacement. You don't just get rid of the bad in your life, you put on the good in your life. You don't become you don't you, you don't you don't overcome sin by just stopping sinning. You overcome it by becoming something else altogether, by putting on something. And the Bible says that if we're going to if if we're going to be the kind of Christian that God wants to be, a humble Christian, then we have to put on some things. And one of them is meekness. I know a lot of people have gone through a trial in life who went through that trial but came out of it meek. I also know others who did the opposite. We're not guaranteed meekness because of difficulties. We have to put on meekness. That's our choice. One of the greatest preachers I know is Dr. R. B. Latt good friend of mine, pastor church, retired um, just a few years back in Michigan. Uh, he's been a friend of mine. He, was, he became my friend when I was, when I was in Bible college. Uh, he's one, he's, I, I have a list of five people that I go to for spiritual advice. He's on that list of, of five people. Every time I've reached out to him, he's always been there. He's always responded. He's authored several books. Um, wanted in churches all across the country. Since his retirement as a pastor, one of the largest independent Baptist churches in Michigan, he's been in evangelism, uh, and he's, he, he was scheduled two years in advance. You could not book him. The greatest tool God's given Dr. Arbiolat is his voice. He had such an amazing voice. I mean, when he'd preach, it was just powerful. I, I like Adrian Rogers that way for that way as well. So what do you think happened when he got throat cancer and just a few weeks ago had to have his voice box removed? I'll tell you what happened. As, as they were taking him into surgery, the greatest tool he's used in his life is his voice. As they're rolling away in surgery, the nurse next to him, he looks at the nurse and says, ma'am, you might be the last person that hears my voice on this earth. He said, could I use my voice to tell you the greatest news you'll ever hear? And the last thing he did with his voice was win that, that nurse suit to Christ. He had two choices. He was going to lose his voice box anyway. But his choice was to use his voice for God. His choice was meekness. I asked him a few months when he had the throat cancer, a few months before they knew they were going to have to remove his voice box, I said, what are you going to do if you lose your voice? And he said, Brother Rudolph, if God chooses to let me keep on preaching his word, I will delight in doing so. He said, but if they take away my voice, I'll write books proclaiming his glory. I've I've read some of his books. He's a good writer. Me and my son, once a week, go through one of his books. Meekness is not... Difficulties. It's how we respond to difficulties. It's how we respond. As we exercise meekness, we inherit the earth. And the primary interpretation is the new earth. Uh second Peter 3 13, nevertheless, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwellth righteousness. But the application I find back in Psalm 37 is a peace. It's to reign over self and circumstances through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Psalm 37, 3 Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and very thou shalt be fed. So usually we inherit something when someone dies. In this case, the Bible says, Meek shall inherit the earth. Who has to die for that? And the answer is we do. We have to die to self, we have to mortify the deeds of our flesh. Dr. Bobby Robertson, when he was alive, um, he had a preacher preach for him. And the preacher said something in his message that was kind of offensive to Dr. Robertson. Dr. Robertson drove him back to the airport afterwards. And the man said, Dr. Robertson, I realize I said something that probably offended you. And Dr. Robertson said, if you did, it's my fault. He said, why do you say that? He said, because the Bible says that I'm supposed to be dead to self And you cannot offend a dead person. Meekness cannot be offended. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. I have other pages of this to go, but I think I'm going to stop right there. Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for the instruction we find in the Beatitudes. Help us to be meek and lowly of heart as our Savior was and is. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.